Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Covert. Thank you, Joseph, for the introduction, and thank you all for joining me tonight. It's really nice to be here. I have been immersed lately in learning about and thinking about places where information, the passage of information breaks down. Okay, so stay with me on this. I know, I know. But I'm a fan of a writer. He he kind of has dubbed himself a historical mystery writer, but he's very factually based and it's Graham Hancock. And he's written about all the the evidence, lots of evidence of past advanced civilizations that occurred before or during or even after the last ice age. And the evidence is huge. So, for example, they're just starting to, uh, archaeologists are just starting to go study these sites. But there are lots of sites in the Mediterranean Ocean. When the last ice age melted, there was a very sudden rise in sea level. And the Mediterranean experienced probably a catastrophic rise where all of a sudden places that were um, occupied cities or villages were inundated with water. And now they're using LIDAR and other modern tools to go investigate those. And it's unequivocal. There are lots of, you know, waterlogged civilizations, but there's more than that. There's Anger Walk, there's Gobeki Tepli, there's Saksuwayman, there's Machu Picchu, Easter Island, all these places where there were amazing stoneworks that we cannot even fathom how these stones could be put into place. In other words, we don't currently have anything that could do that. We don't currently have the technology to cut stones or to arrange stones in the way they were arranged. These joining seams that are not straight up and down. They're irregular. They take right angles. And you cannot even slip a paper between the two stones. It's almost as if the stones were put into place and then melted so that they would seamlessly go against each other. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm saying that is how amazing the joining is. So what happened to this civilization or these civilizations? And why don't we know about them? So Graham Hancock has called us the um, species with amnesia. And I'll leave it at that. There's lots of evidence that our, I don't know if it's Homo sapiens sapiens or other 
you know, subgroups of humans, but there were humans that were making and occupying these places. And there's all kinds of interesting evidence about how that occurred and so on. So you need to go get educated. It's so interesting. Here's just one little tidbit. Did you know that there were red-haired giants all over the world, all over America, New Zealand, Canada, Easter Island, that um, there was actually crossover where people from Europe went to Easter Island and they met some of these, you know, giant people that, and they were the priests. And then there were uh, another population at Easter Island, much shorter. And uh, they were workmen. And later on, when the Europeans went back to Easter Island, everybody was gone. And that happened over and over again with the Europeans because they carried deadly diseases that tended to wipe out the populations of non-Europeans. So anyway, lots of really interesting things. But it got me thinking. And I talked with Scott Thomas, who's a trainer with a great breadth and depth of training experience. And we ended up on the subject of the great chasm that is coming for animal trainers. The chasm between what we experienced and what we know and what we did and what is coming and what people think about animals now. We need to bridge this gap. We need to make it an active part of our work with animals. Because, for example, circus trainers were so helpful to zoo people. When I was at the Franklin Park Zoo, when I was at the National Zoological Park, the circus trainers, uh, then Ringling, uh, the blue unit, was headed up by Gunther Gable Williams. And when they came through town, they would come and visit the zoo in droves. They would help us with training issues. They would help us with understanding equipment, with all kinds of advice. We would go study with them. They would give us access so we could watch them training. We could talk to the trainers. Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers was another great um, circus that I learned so much from the trainers. Uh, Freddie Logan, um, oh gosh, the person I got to spend the most time studying escapes my mind. I will find it and uh, put it here. Oh man, Captain, oh, sheesh, I'll get it. But anyway, <clears throat> I can't even look these people up easily these days. And their hordes of information, these rich loads of information are not accessible. You can't find it on the internet. In fact, it's not the information from one person. Circus families were generations and generations long. And they knew about every aspect. They knew about 
taking care of the animals, medical treatment of the animals, feeding the animals, training the animals, breeding the animals, because they live with those animals 24-7, took them places, traveled with them. I mean, it is amazing what these people are able to do. Uh, currently, Alexander Lacey is an amazing trainer, and yet he's beleaguered by um, activists that are trying to close the circus down. They just think that it is bad to move animals around and have them perform. They're not asking the animals. They just made a decision, these you know various activists. Now, if you ask the animals, I think generally they like what they do. Why do I think that? Do I just want to be able to continue to train animals? Well, actually, I've already moved on to teaching other trainers how to train animals. And so I work as a consultant for various places, but I'm not out there uh, with a full-time job in animal training, like at a circus or at a park or anything like that. So no, it's not so that I can keep doing this. What it is is so that we don't lose ground that we have claimed in taking care of and learning about the animals in managed care. Scott and I go into some of the aspects that are so important. Um, and I think that there's two things that need to happen. We all have been very involved with public education in the course of our careers. I think exotic animal trainers more than dog trainers, for example, or horse trainers. With dog and horse trainers, it's more of an individual relationship with a single client. But with exotic animals, we're often usually out interfacing between our institution and the audience of that institution. And we're educating people all day long until we're not. So why would we not be educating people? Well, I left working at the National Zoo. So whereas I used to often see and talk to one, two, 3,000 people a day, now I talk to whoever listens to the podcast, whoever comes to my classes, whoever reads my manuals. It's not anywhere near the direct input. I don't have the animal right here saying, look, look at this. Isn't this amazing? I have become much more conscientious about proving the validity of what I do with animals. So my horse knows well over 500 words and concepts, and you can just talk to her like a regular person. But I have been so obsessed with proving that what she says is a true and authentic and correct answer that she knows what she's referring to you know I'll switch the I'll offer a choice is it a or b and the next time I'll say is it b or a so 
She has to stay alert because the choice position changes frequently and without any rhyme or reason. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't just go ask her her opinion of things, what she wanted, what she liked, what she uh, would like to do. Just spontaneously, like just making vocabulary to cover different options for what we do that are not work-related. I have not yet fully put this system at her service to empower her. We've been working together for almost 30 years. It's probably about time. So if you have not seen my recent video, uh, what do you prefer or what do you want on your apple slices, please check it out. I know I'm a little cut and dried in my presentation because I don't want to distract from what Sarah, the information she's giving us. But if you just watch Sarah's expression as she considers what she wants, she has a definite opinion. And she likes just being able to choose. Even if she doesn't end up liking smoked paprika, she likes being able to choose to experience it. Wow, that is wonderful. It's wonderful to see. It's wonderful to know. And it's wonderful to put at her service. So what do we need to do so that the experience that we gained, whether you like it or approve of it or not, it's still really valuable experience. For example, Scott talked about uh, collecting dolphins. Well, that's fallen out of fashion right now. If you are known to have collected dolphins, there's a lot of people that will just instantly think that you are a bad person. But you know what? When Scott and I first started, a lot of people considered marine mammals of any kind and description nothing more than pests. They shot at them. They caught them in nets and let them drown. They polluted their areas. They dammed the waterways so that the resident orcas around Puget Sound don't have enough Chinook salmon to support their population, and it keeps going down and down and down. And then uh, the new purchasers of Miami Seaquarium have been harassed into sacrificing Lolita to send her back to this area that cannot even support the native orcas there. And they're going to endanger this orca by shipping her there and then endanger her by making her to adjust to a totally different lifestyle. And if you think it's great to put uh, animals in sea pens, you are behind the times. There are all kinds of modern problems 
with keeping marine mammals in sea pens. And you know what else? The survival of wild marine mammals may pivot on the knowledge that we gain from our experiences with the marine mammals in managed care. It's not just marine mammals. It's not just that we have to find a solution for the missing gene that's going to cause marine mammals to become extinct by the turn of the century. We also have to look for the solution for the genetic bottleneck that is a plaguing cheetah population. Cheetahs are way too genetically limited. What can we do about that? I know there is something. We need to understand about these wild animals that we barely have any knowledge about at all, but which places like the Carl Hub Research Institute have done research on for no benefit to SeaWorld. You know, uh, mating behavior of bearded seals, they're not even kept in exhibits in the United States, for example. But we still need to know about these animals. We need to know about their milk. We need to know about their growth rates, about uh, how they can dive, how they can stand or water, what happens to them. Did you know that when a seal or uh, sea lions are not as deep a diver, but seals and even Terciops truncatus dolphins, the bo Atlantic bottlenose dolphins, when they dive in the ocean, their body is specially constructed to cave in. The ribs will curl right in and compress. And they have all these really specialized adaptations. Gee, maybe we should do a podcast on that. It's fascinating. But anyway, these adaptations allow them to survive deep diving without getting embolisms. That's really important. It's important uh, knowledge for us, for human divers. And it's really important to understand how these different animals live and thrive in the wild and also in managed care. We managed we manage uh, populations of animals under managed care internationally. And we need to learn more about it. I think that we need to develop ways to have more cross-fertilization without necessarily moving the animals to a new place. You know, it's like anybody else's marriage. Just because you're single doesn't mean you're going to do well with that guy over there or that woman over here. Yeah, there's a lot of compatibility. Plus, in the wild, maybe you would stay with your maternal group. But if you get sent to another zoo, if you're a young female, you're going to be bereft of the maternal support. For other animals, it might be in the opposite direction. We need 
to know all these things. We need to not forget what we have learned about training animals and about their behavior. There are factions out there right now that are trying to convince the population of America that anybody that trains an animal is an abuser, is an exploiter. You know what? Nothing could be further from the truth. I will not sit here and tell you that every single trainer is a saint, but a lot of us are. I know from personal experience. We did not take the job for the money. We worked long, hard animals. We made lots of sacrifices. And we lived around our animals to an extent that uh, people now might not even be able to realize or appreciate. We learned things that are fading out. For example, we did a recent podcast about zoo animals, and I was talking about chlorination systems. And Joseph pointed out that he didn't think they were used anymore. And so I predicted, gee, I'll bet you they're using ultraviolet light exclusively now. That would be a good thing. And I know why it would be a good thing, but it wasn't feasible. It wasn't cost feasible or logistically feasible when I was actively involved in training dolphins and uh, working with seals and sea lions. But maybe it is now. I want to know. But you know what else? Everybody also needs to know about water quality control through chlorination. How to do it, the different ways it can be done, the pitfalls, the safety features, what marine organisms are susceptible to chlorination and which are not. And what do you do about those instead? Why how can you end up with blue or green polar bears? That's related to water quality control. How do you how do you solve a problem if chemicals are incorrectly mixed? If you have a fully automated system done by a specific, you know, staff in a large park, you may not know these things. But all of us need to know, all of us need to understand about how fish is handled, what kinds of fish, how long they can be kept, how they have to be kept, how long they can be kept, how they have to be processed for feeding, the cleaning process, it goes on and on. And if you think that we can all just go to the US guidelines that the USDA produces for us when we are becoming licensed animal exhibitors, for example. I have done that. I have that experience. But the laws were written for laboratories. So they're written requiring us to have four inch drains. Well, if you're keeping, let's say, little monkeys in a aviary, an aviary kind of environment where you have all these living plants 
and they can run around in beautiful trees and they have flowers and other animals, other birds and, you know, agoutis and other things and maybe even frogs and salamanders and snakes in the same exhibit. It's beautiful and it's rich, but it doesn't have a complete air turnover every hour. And you cannot put it in a huge dishwasher and sterilize it. And you cannot, you know, just have everything go down a drain and you cannot just have the animals in a stainless steel cage. So they've always had the ability, the USDA inspectors were always able to issue variances. And variances were not, oh, you can do it worse and it's okay because we like you. Variances were, you don't meet the letter of the law, but you meet the intent of the law. These animals are well cared for. They're thriving. You have sufficient veterinary backup. You have sufficient experience, education to do this, etc. But then what happened is these huge animal rights, I mean, I'm going to call them extremists because they're not actually helping animals. They have perfected the art of manipulating people through the emotions that people invest in animals. And they manipulate people's emotions and they um, talk them out of money. And then they talk them into giving up animals in their own lives. They portray everything that we've been doing to learn about and to bring, to learn about animals, to try to help animals both in managed care and in the wild. And our experiences about the animals, our expertise, our ability to narrow the gap between other beings on this planet and ourselves. You know, we were once wild also. Pigs were once wild, dogs were once wild, horses were once wild. But I have worked many wild animals in situations that would allow them to return to the wild or at least escape me. Were they so inclined? And they do not want to leave. I don't find that hard to understand. I don't want to leave them either. Even if I have to work really hard and dedicate lots of resources and go through pain and cold and heat and poison ivy and bee stings, chemical exposures, you know, you name it. This is the life I choose. I do not want to live a life that's separated from animals. My animals are with me for their entire lifespan, and I wouldn't want it any different way. What's happening lately is people are coming in and trying to destroy the relationship that we can form with animals wherever we are, whether we're on a farm, 
or we're in a forest or we're working at a zoo or we're working with, you know, a petting farm or with horses on a ranch or cows in a dairy farm. All of these places can be really very beneficial for animals and for us. And we need to keep getting more experience and knowledge and keep expanding that. And not just to the other animals, um, both in managed care and in the wild, but also to the people that are not so fortunate as to have direct experiences. So if somebody tells me that animals are not happy in a zoo, for example, I know they're wrong. How do I know they're wrong? Because I worked with animals in zoos and I worked with animals in zoos that got out of their exhibit one way or another. And in general, they were eager to get back in. I worked with animals that I didn't, I couldn't even tell that they were getting out of their exhibit because every time they heard me coming, they would rush back to meet me. And so other people would say, oh, you know, they're gone. Well, they weren't gone because I'm looking right at them. It took a long time before I found out that these animals were actually sometimes leaving their exhibits. So they've got a great job. They like their job. They're ambassadors between their kind and humans. And they're helping all of their kind and they're helping all of humans. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that in the time I worked with exotic animals, I brought lots of people closer to them. How many? Well, by one conservative estimate, in the first 20 years of my career, I addressed over two and a half million people. Two and a half million people got to learn about animals by directly watching them interact with me and other of my colleagues. They got to assess the intelligence and the personalities of these animals and learn about their special needs and special adaptations and to develop a care for them that would transcend just being amused at that particular moment in time and turn into a drive to help care for the earth and the earth habitats and the wild populations of animals. And even so, these extremist groups try to turn everything that we do into poison. There was a situation a few years back where there was a devastating drought in Africa and both giraffes and rhinos are under a lot of pressure and in certain areas are endangered and certain kinds of them are endangered. But the rhino was significantly more threatened than the giraffes and the elephants. I'm sorry, it was elephants that were less endangered than the rhinos were. So the country decided 
to euthanize 18 elephants to make the resources that those elephants would require available to the rhinos instead. And zoos in other parts of the world came forward and said, we will give your elephants a home. Elephants are important and we need them and we need to understand about them and we need to work with them to find ways for us all to coexist, to improve the local climate, to solve the problem that is caused because elephants in the wild uh, kill, I think it's 115 people a year. The last time I really checked into it, it's a big deal. Uh, well, it's a big deal if you live around wild elephants, right? May not be a big deal for you if you live in New York City, for example. But it's such a big deal that uh, quite a number of scientists were using their research resources to drive villages around at night because if they ran into lone elephants or groups of elephants while they were walking at night, they were very likely to get killed. So let's change that. What do we need to do to make things so we can live together harmoniously? So I invite you, I, I really, I entreat you to redouble your efforts. I know that you're tired. You put in long days. A lot of you are animal people and you're not necessarily extroverts. But we need you. We need you to talk with all of us so that people in the generation that are leaving the field can transfer the information we have to uh, other people that are just as dedicated as we have been. We need you to keep educating people even outside of your roles in your job. We need to make a continuum for all of the experience, we need to learn from you, find out the state of the art. How are they treating water these days? How is food being processed? Anybody have experience with feeding fish gel? I want to know about it. So this particular session is all about the importance the experience that each of us has is to our ultimate mission, which is to bring people and animals together harmoniously and to care for our earth, all the people, all the animals, and all the habitats. To fix the problem, if uh, whales and dolphins are lacking a gene that will cause them to die by the turn of the century because they cannot process the pollution that humans create that will kill orcas like Lolita just as certainly as any conditions in the Miami Seaquarium. And oh, by the way, for her to make 50 years at Miami Seaquarium, they're doing something right. Anyway, 
we need to try to solve that problem so that we don't lose the entire Earth's population of marine mammals within the next hundred years. I hope you will join me in this effort. And I hope that we can start that more and more by just talking together, by doing webinars and, you know, just meetings. Just come out. It's like, I want to know what you do and how you do it, but not because I want to compete with you. I just want to learn with you and from you. I want to learn the current state of the art, but I also want to teach you what was the state of the art. Because if at any time you're in a situation like in, you know, a war comes up and you can no longer do things one way, you may need an older way to get something done that's really important. Thank you so much for joining me. And I just really appreciate you. If you like, comment, share, the, uh, subscribe, right, to this podcast, it helps it so much. And I hope to hear from you. You can email me directly. You can comment on the podcast. You can come on any of my groups that I put together. And the whole reason I put them together, like I have a uh, Facebook group called um, Animal Training. But I post on it and I post the podcast and sometimes, you know, how we do things and what we do and, you know, my technique, it's called SATS, but we also post anybody else's and everybody else's accomplishments if they care to share them. You know what the biggest problem is on that group? Very little conversation. And that can be partially, it's a private group. Well, I guess it's not so private because I just told you about it, but you still can't go look at it or get on it unless you're invited. And that's because we have to keep it a safe environment. So who else, where else could you talk? Hey, try um, the dog arousal group on Facebook, Sinalia Sats dog arousal and we talk about all kinds of things that you can do uh, for dogs and training dogs but we also sometimes talk about other things so we're out there please connect please help steer the conversations and I look forward to meeting you in maybe person but certainly face-to-face -face over Zoom. All right, take care, everyone. Thank you. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. 
Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.